Hello, listeners, and coming to you just blocks away from the first recorded case of COVID-19 here in the United States of America, it's the Punk Theology Studios with the Punk Theology Podcast. Hold on. I put my fucking mask on. Wait. Ah, fuck it. You're listening to the Punk Theology Podcast. This would be season three. For more info on the punks, and as to what punk theology is, check out punktheology.net. Alright, welcome to uh, the Punk Theology Podcast, where we're talking about powerlessness in the day. These are strange times, Derek. The apocalypse now, right, Steve? Yep. You're wearing your apocalypse now baseball cap. That's right. <laughs> a tattered, weathered American flag. That's right. Drinking a Corona camo. Drinking uh, in honor of the coronavirus. We're drinking a six pack of Corona. Was that cheaper? No. What? <laughs> I've heard that they've taken it. I, I couldn't. I yeah. couldn't pass it. Up. I know. You think that they'd be? You think they're going to get all this free advertising? Yeah. But. Yeah, they. I don't know. People think. I suppose you can only make piss so cheap. Colored water, Eric. Come on. Colored water. Go. Corona's good because it tastes like lime, and that's about it. Yeah. The only reason it tastes like lime, you have to provide your own lime. It's a good white pilsner, Mexican. Um, Derek, powerlessness. I like it. I think there's a lot of xenophobia out there, and then. You know, things are developing and people are learning about this stuff, but this really like exposes the nerve endings of fear and anxiety, something like this. Like, this is global, too. You can't run from it. I was talking to Arthur today about why people are freaking out like they are, and there's lots of good reasons for it. But I think a lot of the reason we're getting the response, like the unprecedented response to this, uh, is because you can have... 150 billion dollars and you're not any safer than some bum on the street yeah they don't have a cure they it doesn't matter how much money you have how much influence how much power uh if you get it they got as many answers as they got for everybody else yeah and i think you know and it's forcing a lot of people to struggle with their own mortality and really examine it like even i had it this week of like, it's allergy season over here. The trees are fucking splooging all over the place. Yeah. And my chest has been hurting because I got this pleurisy shit. And like, middle of the day sometimes, I'm like, oh fuck, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, here it comes. I can feel it yeah. coming. Like, obsessively checking my temperature. I've got the, I've got the bubonic plague <laughs> of 2020. I got the shit. <laughs> like, oh, and you know, I'm 37, so the odds of me dying are low. But kids, like, People are still dying. 37-year-olds have died from this shit. Yeah. Um, Both of them are smokers. Not, as yeah. I smoke a cigar while we're recording. It's not unheard of. <laughs> and there's the, what's that, ketone storm or something like that. Basically, uh, your body overreacts and floods your lungs with fluids to try and fight the disease and ends up drowning you. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the anxiety <clears throat> makes things worse. It, it just piles on the, the heavy breathing and short breaths and yeah, man. So my wife and I have someone very close to us <laughs> who's who works at Providence Hospital and uh, and she can't really talk about it. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping to have her on the podcast and she's like, I, I'm not even supposed to have told you this shit I've already told you, you know. Like they've been sworn to a lot of secrecy. That, that's around us. Like, I didn't want to panic. And she goes, not that it's, it's anything to really panic about here in this region of the world. Um, and she, I said, because I'm a Lyft driver, right? Well, I was until Monday. Um, that's a whole nother topic. But Speaking of powerlessness. Yeah, speaking of powerlessness. Could we, could, we could address that too. But, um, but I was like, you know, concerned. And, and I said, because she works around this stuff. Um, she mentioned, although she wouldn't mention it recently, but being in the room with the patient number one, 
you know, because that's part of what she does in her job. So she was, you know, possibly one of the attendees to the first guy who got the coronavirus in the United States, which is two blocks from here, or yeah. this is being recorded. Um, she said, I, that's another thing. At first she said it wasn't airborne, like it gets on stuff, and then you touch it, and then you get sick. But now she said, yeah, well, they're finding it's airborne. Yep. But it, it's usually in a cloud about five six feet in yeah, diameter the person they who keep, just coughed they keep here's the thing that arthur and i were talking about the other day about the coronavirus nobody actually knows anything about it yeah not really no there's a lot and of, there's and the conflicting data is crazy and people say this is going to happen or that's going to happen and at the end of the day the more i read the more i figure out we just don't know shit. we don't, we don't know anything about this yeah. thing yeah <clears throat> Yeah, it's uh, it's and that's the worst part about it. And again, that's comes back to the powerlessness thing. Uh-huh. Like, like first step when you're in some mm-hmm. kind of traumatic situation is trying to get your feet underneath you and find out all that there is to find out and prepare yourself and yeah. get ready. Give me and, the facts and the answers. Right? And uh, and there's not even that. Mm-hmm. Like we can't even fucking test people in this country because we because the, the I mean we've got just minimal testing compared to yeah. the number of people that need it. So we can't even figure out who has it. Um, that's why that's why the hospital's so overwhelmed right now. And this is what my, my friend told me. She says, um, she goes, we're, she's incredibly busy working overtime. She was in a car accident because she worked like a 16-hour day, and she's in her 60s and drove home in her new car. <laughs> I mean... And got in, a, in, in an accident. I had to walk home because she couldn't find her phone. Um, like, she's she's overworked. And she said the main reason why is because there's not enough testing. And everyone who has a cough and a fever is quarantined. Well, they've got two problems. One is all the hypochondriacs are coming out of the yeah, exactly, yeah, and taking up all the resources. Mm-hmm. And the other is the fucker with... A terrible cough and is barely passing out. is too tough to go to the hospital, <laughs> and he's out at the bar, coughing into his neighbors' faces. Yeah. Like they've got both both ends of the spectrum on that. The people that should be going to the doctor are, and the people that should just stay home and tough it out. And I get that. I have hypochondriac tendencies at times. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. And this is it's this is scary shit. Yeah. Like this is real. Like, like high-risk type of stuff, especially as you're older. Yeah, and I tend to be on the other end of it. I'm 51, and I'm like, yeah, fuck it, I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, see? And I may have, so we've got, we have representation from both exactly. sides of the problem. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 64, and I'm thinking that as well. Yeah? Uh, last week I had allergies all week. And I was thinking, it's in the cold. This is just, it's, it's, this is a shit, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got me. But I wouldn't admit it, right? And I'm not. I'm gonna be that guy. I'll be sixty. I'll be sixty-four. I am sixty-four, and I'll be the guy that gets it and won't do anything with it. I'll just cough and live at home until I die. <laughs> quarantine <laughs> yourself. No, yeah, self quarantine. Your wife is that, your wife is a nurse, so at least uh, yeah, she can bring you. Yeah, nurses are great, except they're horrible patients. Yeah, that's true. Mm. But that's that's the fear. Maybe I should put you out of your misery. <laughs> in my sleep just uh, is that fear of that just we want to know and when we don't know it freaks the hell out of us yeah. no matter what it is yeah, well, there's you know, nothing to be done really yeah. I mean you know that's that's the that's kind of the tragedy why people struggle with the whole wash your hands and don't touch your face thing because it's like that feels so stupid and silly yeah and also I can't stop touching my face like who the hell can do that Another thing is your phone. <laughs> people don't focus on that enough either. It's like yes. your phone. Like people, exactly. Like people touch their doorknob of the bathroom. They do something on their phone, and then they wash their hands, and then they pick up their phone. Weird <laughs> stuff on the phone. And and yeah, that's one thing we we don't wash enough is is our phones or keep them sanitized. But anyway. I, uh, we're not fucking experts on the disease. Yeah, we're not experts. <laughs> we're not. Yeah, we're not. This is not another news flash. Coronaviruses. But you're getting a couple of different perspectives on this, and that's kind of what this show is about. But we also wanted to touch on the philosophy of powerlessness. Yeah, right? well, it's been something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Yeah. 
Uh, and also, could me too. I mean, this would be a series. Of right. Shows. I was just saying we could do a couple episodes on this. Yeah. Um, it came up for me a lot when I was in therapy. Because I think I have a lot of traumatic childhood memories that are mostly traumatic because of the powerlessness in them. Mm. Um, in that, and just like towards the end of my therapy, I was doing a, I was had gotten through a lot of the stuff from when I was a kid, and was dealing with a lot of the shit that was uh, from when I was a teenager, and. Uh, and really, and just kept coming back over and over and over again to how powerless I felt. Mm. And uh, and issues with my parents of them, you know, I was the firstborn kid. They both have anxiety issues. They don't want to give up any control. Um, <clears throat> my mom tends to, when she fills out a control, tends to double down and just seize control back. And uh, her willingness to escalate that is... Uh, is uh, disparaging sometimes and uh, and that came up quite a few times in therapy was it fights that they had that you witnessed and no I mean just arguments like just wanting to have a sense of control over my own life is mostly what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. like um, I remember and this it's funny that because this is just a nothing story but I went and I got my uh, eyebrow pierced I think I was 18 and uh and my mom freaked out, and uh, and and then sat me down and said, "I feel like you're being a bad influence on your younger siblings, and if you don't take that out, I'm not going to help pay for college." Wow! Like just just took that out right away, and I could tell from previous experiences and the look in her eye that that was just her first move. Mm-hmm. Like she was so freaked out that she you know who knows what the fuck was gonna and I remember I was out mowing the lawn um and uh and just stewing it over and and just the sense of injustice but also yeah it really came down to that sense of powerlessness like like she's got me in checkmate like like and yeah and and she knows it and I know it if I fight it, I'm just going to make it worse. Um, and just having a moment where I just kind of broke inside. Mm-hmm. And was like, fine, I'll do what you want, but I'm fucking out of here. Mm-hmm. Like, like I think that was the moment <clears throat> where I emotionally completely left my family. Of like, of like, no, fuck all you guys. Yeah. I'm not, like, I'm going to go to college, and I'll, I'll come for Christmas and Thanksgiving. And uh, and I'm done. Like fuck this. Right. Like you're you're obedient on the outside, but on the inside, it wasn't like, obedience. It was you, a, right? or was a recognition or submission or whatever. It wasn't. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> it was just a cost benefit analysis. Right. Yeah. Like the fight isn't worth it. Yeah. But fuck you. Like really. Like yeah. Just. Um, and that. And again, like lots of other really crazy traumatic shit has happened to me. But that one sticks out, because it and it and in the moment it was really just a silly nothing thing. Right. Um, but it was real. Like, but I had that feeling of being broken. Like they like talk about that in uh, what was that book? Um, it was some some uh, uh, Holocaust uh, prisoner talking about that and talking about the moment like he realized that they broken him. Right. And like he was just going to do what they said no matter what. Man's search for meaning. Yeah, that's what Yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. You did a whole chapter on yeah. that. Yeah. I was just like, like, yeah. fuck, they got me in checkmate. Yeah. Like, like, boot, yeah. boot to his face in the dirt, you know, like, right. oh yeah, fuck yeah. Like there, there's nothing I can do. Uh-huh. The only mode of resistance that I have is to die. And they kind of want me to die anyways. So really, the only mode of resistance I have is to live through this. Yeah, but that's not. It's like see, I think you mentioned standing up on the inside. I really right. resonated with that. Like yeah. there's there's a standing up on the inside. Like fuck you. I'm not. I am not really down here with a boot in my face in the mud. Physically, he was. Right. But yeah, it's an interesting paradigm. 
And again, it's so, I don't know, I almost feel a little self-conscious about it because it's such a s silly little story. But it was that moment. Uh, and things have been escalating towards that point for a long time. Right. Um, Do you feel like your value <clears throat> as a person is kind of being questioned in, in getting a ring? I've heard that from people who got tattoos. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's... And it's like, oh, you're going to get on drugs and then you're just going to spiral down into this horrible person, you know, and there's that, like, well, it's, I don't really believe you know, in you is, or your character. It's a, this is a big leap, but it, you know, it comes down to the reason why rape is so horrible, because it's about consent, and like, mm. and it was a body issue, right? Like, this is my body, I'm 18, um, like, you don't get to force me and tell me what I can and can't do with my body. Right. Like, yeah, that's just not okay. Um, and uh, and you can be, yeah, like, you can be upset and bothered, but, like, to, to play that heavy of a card right away, um, I don't know. And it's, I don't know. But that, that feeling stuck with me for a long time. I think a lot of trust was broken in that moment. Mm -hmm. Not just with my parents, uh, but with the whole idea of being part of any community at all. Wow. I think... I think like you know, they might I, make me, you know... Which in retrospect... Or bring me that place. Is why I never fully committed to Mars Hill. And then after everything fell apart was why I was really, really relieved that I never did. Because yeah. I could feel like that was going to happen again. Like they were going to have a moment where they were going to force me. To, they were going to have me in checkmate. Where, and I'd watch that happen to some people at Mars Hill. Where they'd given up everything. Um, and then they were tossed, tossed aside when things got inconvenient. Or, yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's not a direct analogy, but... No, that's, no it is. It's, it is. That's good. Because it, you see it. Like, you kind of see it coming. And again, it goes to value. I was actually talking about this with Rick today. <laughs> Our friend Rick at AC3, who's actually been on the show. Um, <clears throat> about about the sense of... Uh, has he been on the show? Maybe not the show. Anyway, sorry. Um, about about that, that sense of... of there's rules. You're going to submit. You're going to pull the chain or pull the the toe, the rope, the the line, or you're out. Right. And gay people get that. Like churches that it's not about affirming and unaffirming. Like I hate that. It's just about valuing a person where they're at and loving them and who they are. You know, whether they choose to be gay or not, that really isn't the issue. But it really is for a lot of churches today and if they and they know this deep down like they know in that same way that if they don't submit to the authority that says you know like Ryan Meeks I mean he had a woman that came to him and said um, I'm gay I'm getting married and he usually had to fire her or change his policy but he had a relationship with her and loved her so he changed his policy and laughed, lost half the people in his church you know so so there's consequences for for not putting someone's face in the mud with your boot on their face, right? Um, yeah, that's really brutal. I'm sorry that you went through that. Felt yeah, that I way, guess. You know? I don't know. So it's I feel I it's obvious I suppose talking about how self conscious about it I feel because the story itself just seems trite. It isn't trite, though. It but, isn't. Because uh, you... I mean, that was a part... That was a, a moment in your life that, that was like a train wreck. And it caused a, a domino effect emotionally. And it was based on your mom's not uh, inability to communicate well about how she really felt. And instead of telling you how she felt and loving you as a valuable person, it was, you're going to obey or you're out. Which isn't love, right? It's like what some of the military does. Right. And God bless her, she's just probably freaking out and thought you were going to 
right. get into heroin or something on the streets. Cause She's been reading Dr. James Jobs. <laughs> yeah. Tell you about all the ways your kids are going to hell. <laughs> you know? Well, making millions of dollars off of worried old ladies stuck at home abusing their kids. I don't know. Dobson, he's, yeah, he's a nut, but there's parts of him that I do respect. Like, he was one of the first Christians to say, you know what? Your boys are going to masturbate. They're not going to hell. Get used to it. <laughs> That's one thing I'll give Dobson. Like, he got a lot of shit for that. For yeah, saying that I'm, it's okay to jerk off. I'm uh, not a huge fan. Yeah, me neither. See, I'm the other other way. I was under authority until I was 18 and went to college. And my parents didn't help with college, so they had nothing. And I came home with a eight-inch afro and a jean jacket and beads and spent four years in San Francisco in the 70s. So I, to this day, have issues with authority because that's what I grew up on. And still, I, I struggle with that in churches. That, that was my big issue as well at Marsh Hill. Was felt the pressure to join the community group. Uh, felt the commission. Felt the, the pressure to, to do redemption group. Um, felt the the, the the pull to do something, and I just reek against that even to this day. I just rail against any type of authority. I struggle with it. Because I grew up in it. Uh, I remember that I got my ear pierced. And a part of it was just for the reaction I would get. You know, and I had it for about a year, and then I just took it out, and I didn't care. Because I really didn't, wasn't that big a deal to me. Uh, I'm still toying with the, with the tattoo. Um, not, I, I guess what I'm really trying to figure out is why. You know, what do I want to do? I feel, I'm still trying to be that bad boy. Because that's I was always supposed to be the good the good kid growing up because I was reflection of in in my dad's eyes I was reflection of his parenting skills and when I acted out uh, it was reflection on him so he would really get upset and then when I was older 18 19 left, went away to college and came back I was never the same again because I started to think on my own and, and act on my own. Mm-hmm. But I still struggle with that. And that, even that, that's why I have a fear of the unknown, because I like to know. I like to know what's there. I mean, this powerlessness, I'm not a big fan of being powerless. Mm-hmm. And that's, this scares me, because you don't know what tomorrow's going to have. Yeah. The virus, you mean? Yeah, the virus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know. Going back to, to what you said about, um, about your folks and then going to college, did you ever have that transition where you felt like you were going to do something that you knew your your parents who you know who loved you raised you gr- brought you up in this way were going to the biggest fear is going to get caught I get caught be exposed yes yeah. that would be my that was my biggest fear was to get caught no matter what it was yeah. you know um, down in the, just walking down town San Francisco 12.30, 1 o'clock at night. Of course, that was 40 years ago, so it's a lot different now. But that was probably my fear of getting caught was what kept me in a more controlled environment. Is there like a, like a, like Derek comes home with the, the thing in his face, right? Like you have a, you have a piercing. Like is there a kind of an emotional thing that you had that reflected, I guess coming home with an afro and yeah. beads is sort of your yeah, because I grew up piercing, right? Dad said he'd pay me, this is back in the 60s, he'd pay me five bucks if I'd get a uh, haircut that I wear now. Uh-huh. You know, and that was when, back in the 60s when it wasn't cool. And as soon as I left, I let my hair go. I did not cut my hair from the time I left in September until I got back for Christmas. And I remember I rode the Greyhound bus home from San Francisco, got out of the bus station, Greyhound station. My mom picked me up at, in the, at the Seattle Greyhound station, and she goes, i got to call your dad. I go, for what? She goes, I got her warm. Because <laughs> I was in a jean jacket and I had broidered patches on the back and everything. And back then it was Jesus saves, get right or get left. You know, we was a big Jesus people. Right. And uh, she goes, I got to warn him. And she goes, Jack, be prepared. <laughs> Steve's not who he left. And, right. you know, and that's who I was. And then I think even. That image, I think, is probably, um, my wife and I have talked about it, and that's part of what attracted her to me, was 
that bad boy, uh, radical guy who's claimed to love Jesus. Right. Because she grew up in a very conservative, Christian, strict family. And I was the antithesis of who she was supposed to date. I saw this really interesting post the other day. It said, strict parents are very good at teaching their kids. They're very good at teaching them how to listen for footsteps, how to lie to someone while looking them in the eye, <laughs> how to how to manipulate someone into doing what you want, and how to sneak around. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what you end up. That's when you're really strict. That's what you end up teaching your kids how to do. Exactly. Is to get away with shit. And I I was doing a lot of reflecting recently because I was a very sneaky kid. I was sneaking stuff constantly, and my default eventually even as an adult, which I still struggle with sometimes, is just to sneak it. And, and I'm a very firm believer in ask, or, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission mm-hmm. type of thing. Like, that, those tendencies tend to come up all the time. Uh, and my mom, you know, basically imprinted in my head because I was a bad kid. And then, you know, doing more therapy and thinking and talking and processing, I was like, no, you were fucking strict. Yeah. You were yeah. super strict, and I didn't have any option. Yeah, like, like you were unable to give me explanations that I needed, and address the concerns that I had, and and provide for for me in ways that I needed. And and you were not a safe person to go to, and to ask things from. Uh-huh. And uh, and so I just learned how to sneak stuff. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not a bad kid, and I'm not a bad person now. I was conditioned to, to do that because you were so controlling all the time. How are you with your kids now? Uh, I, I hope I'm better at that. Um, I was just reflecting today about I think I'm just generally better at explaining things and talking to them about uh, like even if like my daughter wants to do something that's not really that big of a deal, but it sounds like a pain in the ass and I don't feel like it, I'll just tell her that. Yeah. Like, look, what you want to do is fine, and on a normal day, that would be okay, but it requires a lot out of me, and I'm just not up for it. I'm like, I'm sorry, and that sucks, and you're right. And that's, I mean, I'm not going to demonize what you're trying to do mm-hmm. or what you like or the things that you right. enjoy. I'm just going to tell you, like, I, I don't got it today. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Like and, and I'm your only option. Like you don't, you can't do this any other way. Right. Yeah. It's just me. And uh, uh, but you know, catch me another time and we'll try it. Or and she's she's a very smart girl. Uh, so if I explain stuff to her, she usually gets it. And she's got a good head on her shoulder. She's very she's pretty pragmatic. Yeah. Um, and uh, like just today, there's this neighbor kid, neighborhood kid who's just he's just he's just a bad kid. And we're just talking about like he's <laughs> it's legitimately a bad kid. And every time my kids play with him, someone gets hurt every single time. Um, and uh, and then I, I went out and and the, this kid was confronted. No, somebody got hurt. And I walked over and pulled it. And so my daughter came back and was talking to me. And she, she asked if she'd go play with him again. And they'd been playing together. And I let them play with this kid because I want them to eventually realize. For themselves, this is a bad kid, yeah. but I'm not going to let you go back. Like, somebody just got hurt, I'm not going to let you go back. Yeah. Uh, and I said, like, like, sorry, I don't feel great about you going back. And I said, do you know why? And she goes, yeah, Kazarian's not that good of a kid. And I said, that's very good. That's right. And she didn't say anything else, and she just went back up to her room. And that was super great, I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as far as I know, she's pissed. But she's, I don't know, I feel like I have a relationship with her. Or if she's really pissed off at me, she can come tell me she's really pissed off at me. And you can listen. And I can just be like, okay, yeah. Instead of barking orders. And, right. Right, right, right. and that's That was, it. you know, I think, is that the generation that kind of, I'm a X or you're a, a boomer, boomer, but it's it's sort of, do what I say, yeah. you know, that just, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you know, there's no questioning the authority. And then that was. And I've done that in times too. Yeah, sometimes and, I, and then I have to go back afterwards and explain it. And yeah. sometimes I go, look, I just well lost my shit. Mm. That was on me. You weren't making like I was fine. You were fine. I was just in a bad spot. My anxiety was peaked. Uh, I had a shit day, and I'm sorry. And sometimes it's like, well, no, you were actually in danger. Like, and I just needed you to to just do what I say. Mm. Uh, but I don't want that. I want that to be a special occasion. 
Yeah. And so much, you know, my childhood, it was that constantly. Right. Like every little thing was like a, yeah. was a barked order and marching orders and you're going to do, fucking do it. Yeah. And don't. Uh, I don't care how you feel. Right. <laughs> you just, yeah, that's what I wish that's my dad would ex, explain that and, and had conversations. Um, that's one of the things I try to do. Kids are 25 and 29 now, and it was probably 10 years ago that I really began to realize, okay, I need to change dress. I'm going to lose these girls. Mm-hmm. And they both are at that point that they'll tell me anything. Um, they have no fear. They don't feel like I'll judge them. They, don't, they feel like I'll accept them. And then on the, that little guy in the back starts to say, yeah, they're just going to run rampant. They're going to mm-hmm. go crazy on you. And then, um, then the rationalist says, no, maybe not. You know, but if they do, that's their choice. Um, hopefully, and you're there. And I'm here. And yeah, I've yeah. told them, you know, um, I've told them both that our house is always open to you guys, uh, no matter when. And if you come home, I'll never charge you rent to stay at the house. You know, and they both appreciate that because they know that that cushion's there. Remember my dad told me years ago when his, 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 uh, his mom died, his dad died and then his mom died. And he told me when his dad or his mom died, the last parent died, he says, the realization that there's no one to go home to struck really hard. That was the hardest part for him. The relationship, yeah, but the fact that he was really on his own and he was the last of his family to live. I remember feeling that when Misha's dad died. Like, the weight of responsibility Mm -hmm. passing. And like... I mean, and Misha's mom's, and I've got my parents, and Misha's mom's there, but she's just not as involved. And her dad, it was very clear when her dad was alive <clears throat> that he was the person you go to when shit goes bad. Mm-hmm. And him dying, having that moment of like, oh shit, yeah. I'm, now I'm the person yep. Yep. that I go to yeah. when shit goes bad. Uh, that's not a great feeling. No, that, that's scary. Yeah. And again, that goes back to that powerlessness because you just don't know what's down that road. I mean, you don't know. Like, you hear a lot of, we are one phone call away from total havoc. You know, you get a phone call from home. There was some mm-hmm. meme that I saw recently. It was, you know, me as a kid, when some some something bad happens, oh man, I better go see what the adults think. They probably have this figured out. And it was me and as an adult Oh man, I better go see what the adultier adults think. They probably have this figured out. <laughs> adultier. <Yeah. laughs> was adulting effective? Yeah. Yes. I remember my daughter More told adult, me adult. her first day of, of teaching first grade, uh, their very first day of the very first year of teaching, and the principal came in with her and left her. And my daughter looked around and go, okay, where's the adult? <laughs> oh, uh, shit, it's me. Yeah, oh, shit, it's oh, me. No. Exactly. I'm responsible. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's trippy because I, we were talking, I'm actually going down there tomorrow to spend the day with her and do some stuff in her garage, but we talked about that. I said, when did you feel like a teacher, not just pretending? And, you know, I've been in sales now for almost two years, and that's just now starting to peek through that I'm a sales rep. I'm not a deliver guy pretending to be a salesman, you know, and that's been hard. Yeah. Just that identity because you still are stuck in that same mode of I'm powerless. I have that at work even still. Do you? Just you know, because people, I'm the engineer, and there's a right. sense of weight with the what does the engineer think? Yeah. And there's so much, so many times where and what people, people look up to you yeah and what people yeah. think an engineer can do versus what they can actually do like they think you have it's like being a doctor like they think you have magic powers mm-hmm. and like sometimes they'll ask me a question I'm like like oh what does the engineer think like, one has nothing to do with engineering uh-huh. and two like I'm probably less qualified to answer that anybody else in this room but you guys are all looking to me to figure out what we're going to do <laughs> I, don't, I don't know yeah have to go look it up in a book somewhere. That's what engineers do. That's what that's what doctors do too, right? Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. They just go look practice. shit up in books. You practice. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like we're doing here. We don't have rules. We have practices. We practice. So do you think that powerlessness is what's fed our hoarding? Um, I was over at QOC tonight, and the whole paper, po- yeah. the whole toilet paper roll is gone. <laughs> I think that shit's deep. I think that's evolutionary oh, yeah. monkey shit. <laughs> like, well, and the funny thing is the people that have it and the people that don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and how some people, like, 
just a teeny tiny little thing will come up and they're instantly into horde and prepare yeah. mode. And some people's lives are a shitstorm. Uh, and they can't be convinced to prepare for the next hour. Right. Like it's just and uh, but no, I think and I've been thinking a lot about that just in terms of like racial stuff. Like what makes white people there, there's something about white people that makes it really ugly when it comes to racial relations. And I think of it comes a lot of it comes down to resource anxiety. And if you think about white people and why they are what they are and why they have access to the privileges that they do, it comes from the fact that, you know, in when you live in a really northern exposed area, you have to spend all summer hoarding a bunch of shit and then saving it for the winter. And that creates a huge level of resource anxiety. Uh, and I see it, you know, I mean, it's not great to generalize, but I see it a lot in, in white people manifesting itself in different ways. And I think the run on Costco is a great example right. of that resource anxiety of like... So the possibility of not having, they, they've got to get... Right, and it's not... Yeah, and it and it's not rational necessarily. No. It's just yeah, it's that anxiety gets peaked, that the monkey lizard brain shit kicks in, and uh, you know it's why it's why we have people that are worth 150 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Why are you still working? Not only that, why are you working 80 hours a week? Yeah, you are worth so much money that you if you spent Six lifetimes you still couldn't spend it all. Why are you still working? Like, what is that? And I think a lot of it, it, when you really strip it down, comes down to resource anxiety. Mm. Like, I just, like, I think there's a, it's like a, it's a psychological condition of, of I can't turn this off. And there's different types of anxiety, and I, but I think resource anxiety is its own type. Uh, and I struggle with it a lot. I'm a saver. I love saving. I get a huge fucking dopamine rush when I save something. Really? Like, if I look at my bank account at the end of the month and I put away a good amount of money, best, way better feeling than buying a new car, even. Better feeling than buying anything. Just having that number looking at me. being like, I'm the opposite. I get a little dopamine <laughs> rush from buying <laughs> right, shit. Dude, they buy shit I don't need. Like, ooh, that's going to make me happy. It's almost like the porn one, right? I think it's just, ooh, this whole... Yeah, and I'm just make you happy just for a minute like that. And I think there's some weird English waspy Norwegian <laughs> fucking shit that you know it's the, it's what the Scots and the Danes, right? And all those really north uh, located groups of people that had to work all fucking summer uh, to make sure that they lived through the winter. Uh, they're notorious for just being tightwad saving. Uh, efficient, like the Germans, fucking efficient, right? Yeah, like, yeah. use every scrap of everything. Because uh, you're going to die, because nature kills the people that don't do that. Right. Uh, but then you're like a zombie, right? No, it's not like, good. Oh, exactly. Well, and then yeah, you yeah. end up enslaving the people around you, because yeah. you're... Because you... Well, resource anxiety is really a fancy word for greed. That's what greed is, mm. in its basis. Is... is Greed is is deeper than pleasure at having things. It's anxiety over not having things. Mm. It's it's like a deep driving, and it's how you end up with fucking slavery. Like holy shit! It's how you end up with shows like The Walking Dead too. Like there's a great analogy there, where the people who are living are surrounded by other people who are dead, but they're not really dead. They're living, but they're really tenacious. Right. Right. Like they have, they have yeah. extreme resource anxiety, and they're tenacious as hell as getting what they want, which is usually brains and eating flesh. And, and, and so the people who are alive then turn on each other, trying to survive the ones who are, you know, got their shit together, so to speak. I guess in your analogy, right, with all the billionaires, and like there's a class thing going on there, too. There's some people who are living, and there's some people who are. You know, they're kind of 
they're living, but they're not. Well, yeah, they're just they're animalistic. I think is what you're trying to go to. Yeah, That's yeah. why what an am, what a zombie's like, right? It's just an animal person. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, consume. Got, yeah, and they've got such again. I think it comes down to anxiety. They've got such strong anxiety mm. about, and that I think. But they're alive, but they're dead. Right, and they <laughs> and they can't like it's almost you know and they're imprisoned inside their own bodies. Yeah. Because I'm sure they have a deep, rational, compassionate, empathetic version of themselves in there somewhere. Yeah. But their anxiety is so strong that it just destroys them and keeps them consuming and consuming and, and storing and storing and storing. Uh, and then at the same time, it makes everybody else around them miserable. Like, yeah, exactly. Just working people to death. Peter Rollins did a talk on some YouTube somewhere called Salvation for Zombies. <laughs> it's really good. And it goes into a lot of that. Um, my So I have three big powerless jolts in my life. And, uh, you know, growing up Christian and doing the prayer and, you know, God's there and God loves you and he's taking care of the, the kids who are in his family. Right? Like there's a club, there's a family. I learned that really early. Like there's a there's a certain amount of people who are God's kids and the other ones are out and you have to say this prayer and then when I said the prayer then I figured I was in and then my parents got divorced and I was only seven years old you know and that I think that was a huge hit of powerlessness there because I prayed and prayed and prayed and then there was this like glimmers of hope and they got like counseling or something you know and they started going on date nights and yeah and i thought oh man it's coming together you know and then you know like somebody you you pray for them they go into remission and then it's just like a huge fight um and my dad wasn't staying the night at our house anymore mm-hmm. you know and that sense of powerlessness really shook me um Moving to Snohomish, sexual abuse. That was the second mode of powerlessness that I didn't really, I wasn't conscious of. I was conscious of the third one, which was addiction. Mm -hmm. And in addiction circles, there's a lot of talk around powerlessness. Like it's the first step in the 12 steps. Like the the first step isn't fight, it's surrender. Um, Surrender to something bigger than you are. And, and that's an interesting concept, right? Because there's a lot of people, well, that's religion, and uh, fuck religion. Um, I would agree with that whole fuck religion authority, and we got God figured out, so follow our thing. Um, but the powerlessness around it, like I did have to get to the place where, no, I don't have control over this. Like it's controlling me, and I don't control it. And if I keep doing this, I'm going to die, you know? Um and, and it took another fuck, years of me stuffing and scamming and pretending and lying and covering up and not, you know, it's kind of like what you said about the authority. Like, you learn how to adapt. I was told by this guy, and he's trying to keep me quiet, that you can't tell. Like, if you tell, they're going to see you. And that was that was the mind fuck that I got from the from my abuser was they will see you they will see you and you're dirty right I see it you know you and I share this thing you know right. and and you're dirty and you're sick and yeah. you're unlovable back way back door way of telling you you're gross yeah exactly yeah, I relate to that too and, but we're we're in this club buddy and you, you know I understand you that's why you can't say anything like that guy that shit that shit wormed its way into my mind. To where I almost destroyed myself trying to escape the powerless of that. And then I gave myself over to something that I became powerless to. And then over time, I had to get back to this. I gave myself over to a number of things that I became powerless to. Um, but then I had to come back to that place and go, you know, no, that's that's not true about me. But I had to, I had to visit that. I had to go back. And visit that. I didn't have to relive it. I didn't have to, you know, go through some therapy thing and like, oh, Russ has got... It wasn't about that. It was about dispelling the lies and seeing it on the screen as an adult and going, that wasn't right. That wasn't fair, what was done to that kid. And the lessons he was taught. And that kid was me. 
and uh, that was breaking the powerless. But I had to get to that place of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. I had to get to that place where the the monkey brain fucking guy in me wasn't hoarding toilet paper Costco anymore. You know, in our Corona analogy. Yeah, that's a painful place to be. I yeah. had to do a lot of that in therapy too, and yeah. it sucked. Yeah, it was. That was probably the, one of the hardest things I did in therapy was relieving that powerlessness. Mm. Like I, I can relive a lot of shit. That's that one's. My body was, my body and mind was both like, no, it's, let's do something else. Yeah, I think that was probably the, one of the hardest. And honestly, when I go back, it's probably most likely where I need to pick up again. Not looking forward to it. But. In the powerlessness part. In the powerlessness part, you know, because it's, yeah, big theme in a lot of my damage. Mm. And I think of most people's trauma, when you really strip it down, it's to, to the, like I couldn't do anything. This, this person who was really sick and did not have my best interests in mind had me in a chokehold and there wasn't anything I can do about it. Yeah. As a, no matter where you are, that's an awful feeling. Yeah, it is. So do you think that the the idea of being powerless and our fight against it is just feeds the powerlessness because we are powerless. Right. I mean, ultimately, when, you, when it gets down to it, um, we don't I mean, we can take some measures to make take care of ourselves, um, but ultimately, we die. And I think one of the things I'm working through in my own life is tr- not trying to trade something for the powerlessness that just is powerless in itself. You know, just um, with this whole thing, that's one of the anxiety issues. I saw where your buddy, our buddy Seth, is doing a one-off on his life coaching on anxiety and fear, and he's given a discount for it, um, which neither here nor there. But we get to that point of saying, okay, I'm going to lean in to the fear, to the, to the powerlessness. And that's scary mm-hmm. when you realize yeah. I'm leaning into that darkness. some reason, it feels much more damaging when that powerlessness has a face. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because you're right, what you're talking about death and the inevitability of, of everything and how we really don't have much control over what happens from day to day. Like, that's its own type of anxiety and fear. But, I, but it, it doesn't penetrate as deep right. as having some, especially someone that you're supposed to be able to trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh turn on you and uh... that's a big part of my faith too is is that idea that Christianity is is an anti-religion <laughs> and some people have issues with that and John and I would go back and forth about that but I really believe that the antithesis of a lot of philosophy and getting to a you know a life understanding of, of meaning and continuing on, you have to embrace some kind of idea that life is beautiful, you know, that there's mystery and moving forward and beauty and truth is, you know, is that like, are you, are you going to move forward in beauty or truth or stay in that place? Like you were saying, Steve, of of powerlessness, but your story, I get really curious about about some of what you've shared in in the um, like you you've had the wounds that that pierce your value, <laughs> and as your friend, and some of the stuff you've shared here, mm-hmm. I've seen that where you as a person, and it makes me want to. I'm getting emotional talking about it because I love you, man, and sometimes I see you. You know, I see you sitting on the outside, shitting on yourself, mm-hmm. and and there's roots to that, you know. Um, and and can you visit those roots and, and not not out. let it in? Yeah, I am. 
incredibly attracted to people who see value in me. And I would run through a brick wall if I if someone believed in me. And because I don't really I mean you got the parents that say, well they're their parents, so of course they believe in you. But both my daughters believe in me. And I will do anything for them. Because they believe in me. They see more. They see me as I want to see myself. Uh, I'm getting better. You know, I can look at myself not so um, critically. But when I do, still, still do dumb stuff. You know, getting that ticket for um, talking on my phone. I mean, that's one hundred thirty-nine dollars that yeah. I could have spent anywhere else. But I, kept, as I got done, and I even told the cop that I said, "I'm such a dumbass." I said. I was going right over here to the UPS store. I could have just waited, but I was dumb, you know, and that was hard. And it took me a couple days, and like my daughter told me, um, she goes, Dad, we all do it. Don't worry about it. You know, it happened. I said, I know, but I just feel like I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of felt, I felt, I really empathized with you on Monday night mm-hmm. because that could have been me. Yeah. Um, they say that that day after daylight savings time is one of the most dangerous days. Of driving because we're still fucks with my head. Too. Oh God, yeah. yeah. Bouncing off what you just said, so this week has been uh, tremendous. Steve just talked about. I so saw Monday I wrecked my car, and I'm a Lyft driver. It wasn't even my car; it was Lyft's car, and I was renting it from them. It was a hybrid, and it was a cool car. It was a little red hybrid, and it was fun to drive, and I really liked that car. And uh, yeah, you know I having a ride request and going into this bus area parking place and I took a left right in front of this woman in this little Fiat. It was weird. The Fiat was fine. Like it had a dent, you know, in the front. Um, but the whole front end of the of the Hyundai was gone. Airbags didn't play. Uh, I'm a little sore, but I'll be all right. Um, but yeah, I was in a, in a car accident and I lost my job. You know, because I can't drive, and I have a thousand dollar deductible on the rental that I am responsible for. And then, yeah, it's weird. I get a text from Lyft uh, the next day. It's like, hey, you're still online. You can still drive. Just you can't rent again until you pay deductible. But if you have your own car, you know, go back online to drive for Lyft, um, which was weird. But. I still, I just felt like in that moment, like I shouldn't be doing this. You know, 50 hours on the road every week and 40 hours, 50 hours. um, And then just feeling like a total shit. And like, where am I? Like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm 51 years old. I'm driving a goddamn lift for a living. Um, Why is my life here? You know, and and just, just mulling over hating on myself or fighting it you know mm-hmm. like I could see it it's almost like this monster peering over me which I didn't used to see before now I kind of see it but it takes it does take having friends too to 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 tell me what's valuable about me I started looking for jobs right away and I'm on the job boards and uh, and my friend Derek here I'm going to get emotional again Derek wrote a, a review for me, like, a, you know, because you need references, right? Um, I shot Derek an email. I was like, hey, can you give me a reference? I shot you went to back a while back. And, and you wrote a reference of me that, like, shook me. Because, because you know me. And part of it was, oh, like, yeah, I am kind of like that, <laughs> you know? But at the same time... Um, yeah, dude, that was really, that was beautiful. That was you being my friend and, and and me and waking me up out of this constant fucking monster looming over me, telling me what a what a loser I am and stuff, you know. I meant it. Thanks. I didn't have buddy. to fluff any of it. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's Thanks, what's beautiful about relationships is that others see us as we are. We see us as we think we are, yeah. and we think we're bad. I mean, because all those voices that keep telling you're a loser. I remember I don't remember what it was. Now I did something, and my my youngest said, "Dad, you don't know. It's all right. Don't worry about it." I said, "Well, it's something that I should have known. I cannot recall for the life of me what it exactly was, but it was something I should have known better of." And she goes, "Dad, you didn't know. 
And she was more kind to me than I am to myself. And I think that's what friends do. You know, if you got relationships that um, accept you and see you. And you can take... And see, the struggle I have with that is that's how how I see myself is, is I, I put that on how I believe God sees me. Mm-hmm. And I can never be good enough. And so why try? You know, as opposed to seeing like that review that Derek gave you. Is the same review, I think, you know, that God gives us. And if we can just see us as, as He does, um, and not as we see ourselves. I mean, that voice in my head is just nonstop. I mean, I wake up in the middle of the night to go piss and let my dog out, and boy, the voices just start. I put earplugs in and they're just laughing. I'm the same way. One of my least favorite things in the world is knowing that somebody else is thinking I'm an idiot. Yeah. So I, that mostly happens when I'm driving too. There's no way you can't you can't explain anything. Like like I, had, I really had a reason for I know I looked like an idiot. For some reason that just oh yeah eats at me. Yeah yeah like yeah. like really really eats at me. Yeah and I and it's and then I get on myself for getting on myself. <laughs> yeah, and it's just a cycle. Like, yeah, because I get on yeah. myself for getting on myself for getting on myself. Yeah yeah I mean, yeah like. Like, even that happens, and then I'm obsessing about it. And then I go, like, why are you obsessing about it? You'll forget this in a couple of days. Like, God, you always do this, you fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. You should remember what it was. <laughs> I had put one item in the washing machine. Okay. It was a sweatshirt. <laughs> and it didn't spin. Yeah. And I thought the washing machine was broke. Right. So I go over to Judd and Black... I didn't get a washing machine. I'll jump to the end of the story. But I over Judd Black, and I'm looking at their washing machines. I'm thinking, you know, this thing's about 10 years old. It's due. And he's telling me, what's it doing? Yeah, you probably, I got, well, I got a repair guy coming out. He comes in and does it, and it's $85 house call, and it's a friend of the family. Mm-hmm. But he goes, so they got out of balance because I had one item in there. Gotcha. And I go, I can't believe that. We didn't do laundry for two weeks. Because I thought the washing machine... And my daughter said, Dad, you didn't know. Yeah. You wouldn't know. Yeah. And I was so hard that on myself. Having to, yeah, yeah. So hard on myself. And that's why I love having my kids in my life. Um, because they see me as I wish I could see myself. Yeah. So how would we talk to, uh, to land the plane? How would we talk to those... Well, I got a job here? this morning. I start tomorrow. I had an interview today. They're like, we're really busy. We need you. You start tomorrow. That's awesome. Which is pretty sweet. Good job. And it's Super for a, sweet. a towing company, and I'm working the phones to start, which is fine. I'll start there, you know. And, and to get a job right now during the the bubonic plague <laughs> of 2020. Yeah, a lot of people are listening. A lot of people. Right I had another interview. I kind of I like to try the mechanic thing because it's something I. I enjoy working on cars and solving puzzles and helping people and being a mechanic sort of like being a doctor. Yeah. Although being a doctor, being a mechanic, you both have to give people bad news. That kind of sucks like this. I'm sorry, this is going to cost a lot more than we were we were thinking. Um, but anyway, to, to, to land this job um, based on some of my skills even as a, as a person who is good with people who are in turmoil you know getting their car towed or whatever and knowing some technology stuff um it was just you know i was incredibly blessed lucky fortunate um whatever your worldview wants to subscribe to that so <laughs> so the anxiety you, over not your anxiety's completely switched since from monday night yeah, and you know what? I turned out my wife and I were running the numbers, and it depends on the taxes and everything. But I'm probably going to be maybe getting more money at this mm-hmm. than I was driving the little red hybrid. There's room for advancement. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. You don't get any promotions oh. when you're a pro lift driver. And I'm going to be a yeah. No, it kind of keeps going down, and that's part of it. It's like I've been doing this for five years, and the best money I ever made was the first year I did. Yeah, that's how startups oh, yeah, work. Yeah. And then, and now it's like you know, well, the more then, people you can get to do a thing, the less valuable the thing is. Yeah. So like, keep cutting and making it harder, make harder and harder to make money. So and then even down the road, 
it's something that you could even do on a semi-part-time, super-part-time exactly. basis. Yeah, because I kind of enjoyed the work. You know? Yeah, I would enjoy uh, that part of it is the yeah, aspect yeah, the of meeting different of people yeah. and, and visiting. I've, I've, I rode once with an Uber driver um, from Painfield to my house. It's about a 10-minute drive, but I enjoyed the conversation with the dude. Yeah, it was fun. I just, you know, I wish I'd had longer just to explore more into his life, and I could see that be the part of that gig that would really be fun. Yeah, man. Well, we're out. Uh, Hang in there, guys. Don't die. That's right. There's if you're no, start coughing, go to the doctor. We should write a song about the coronavirus. <laughs> Some song about the plague. I'm gonna be somewhere. <laughs> Later. That's a huge bitch. Hey. Help a punk rock robot out. Scratch my itch by hitting that subscribe button. Like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound? Please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio or wherever you hear this fucking podcast. Punk Theology is the property of Digital Audio Project who is responsible for its content. Don't check it out! This disc contains CD-ROM data and is not for audio use. Please press stop on your disc player now.